Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Mention the company name Brookfield to anyone in the Toronto real estate sector, and chances are they'll associate it with terms like real estate giant, global investor, or financial powerhouse. Headquartered in Toronto, Brookfield is all that and more. Over the last decade, Brookfield Asset Management has evolved from a diversified Canadian investment company into a multi-billion dollar juggernaut with global investments in real estate, infrastructure, renewable energy, and private equity. And despite being a homegrown Canadian success story, much of Brookfield's investments are more pronounced abroad than here at home. Recently, however, Brookfield has signaled an increasing interest to invest in the greater Toronto real estate market, including a new partnership with InterRent REIT and CLV Group to develop a huge multifamily mixed-use development on the GO Transit rail lands in Burlington, Ontario. To talk about Brookfield, I'm joined by Ashley Lawrence, Managing Director and Head of the company's real estate division in Canada. Ashley, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks, Jeremy. Pleasure is mine. So one of the first things I like to do when I prep for my interviews is to check out the guest's company website. And going onto the Brookfield website, I was quickly struck with some very impressive facts about your company. $500 billion in assets invested in over 30 countries around the world. And of that, $193 billion of real estate assets under management. I mean, those are staggering numbers. It's almost hard to put that into perspective. Now, you've been with the company for 14 years, is that right? Going on 15. Going on 15. Yep, that's right. You've watched it grow and you've grown very successfully with it. So in the context of those staggering numbers, how would you like to describe what Rookfield is and what it has become? Right. So when, when I joined the company in 2006, I guess it was, if I, if I can recall the number correctly, uh, we had about... 35, 36 billion of assets under management. So it, ha- it has been a tremendous growth over that period of time. Um, and we have evolved in what we are. Uh, right around that same time was when we were really starting uh, the evolution of really a principal investor with our own capital and balance sheets with some of our um, sort of friends and family from a corporate perspective investing alongside us to really an alternative asset manager managing a lot of our clients' funds and money. And it's taken the, the 15 years to get from that $36 billion to the $500 billion. And in that time, um, we have grown our business in really four major sectors. Private equity, which we have been in for a while and we're in in 2006 and prior to that, but we have grown that business. Real estate's the the obvious one you mentioned um, that we have grown that business tremendously from a global perspective, and later I can I can tell you about some of the things we're doing around the world, uh, renewable power as well, and infrastructure, which sometimes are linked but also separate um, in terms of their balance uh, balance sheet public companies. Um, but amongst those, real estate is the largest and has been our sort of historic traditional asset mm. base, especially in Canada, where we are largely known um, as an office owner and landlord. Can we talk a little bit more about the, the evolution of the of the company and how, 
how it got to where it is today. I mean, what are some of the key milestones uh, over yeah. the course of its history? I think there's a few things um, that, that I would point to. The, the first is really that Bruce Flatt really formed this idea, this strategy, and to be perfectly frank, just executed on it over the years, almost mm -hmm. perfectly. Now, I think even he would admit sometimes there's a little bit of luck, and I think in the last sort of 10 years, post-financial crisis, low interest rate environment, the type of assets that we manage by and are experts in have become tremendously attractive to investors around the world as equity markets and those type of investments have um, and bonds, et cetera, have been returning very low rates. Real estate infrastructure, those kind of sectors have become very attractive and we've seen increasing allocations from pensions, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies going into those kind of assets. So to, to some degree, there's always a little bit of luck. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say the other few major steps in our evolution are right around the financial crisis. Um, we, right after, in fact, we recapitalized general growth properties in what at the time I think was the largest recap uh, post-bankruptcy um, in the U.S. And as a result of raising the capital for that deal, um, it helped evolve our thinking around uh, raising funds for those kind of situations um, so that we could focus on the deal, so that we could focus on executing and had the dry powder available to us. And that really got our fund business on the real estate side uh, kicked off. And we closed our first global opportunistic fund a few years later. I believe it was 2012 uh, at around four and a half billion uh, we did a second fund that was right around $9 billion, and then early last year we closed uh, our current fund. We're investing our third uh, opportunistic fund. These are global funds at uh, right around $15 billion. I guess with that, the, your decision-making and the, and the opportunities changed over the years. I, I guess around the time of the, the financial crisis or, or shortly thereafter, your strategic direction changed. What were some of the opportunities that came up as a result? Yeah, so early in our sort of real estate um, history, we, are, we were largely an office landlord, both here in New York um, and to some degree in our early investments in, in Canary Wharf. What has happened since then as we've um, increased our capital base and the, the capital that we're investing for our clients, we've greatly diversified um, in really two main ways uh, that is globally so now where largely we were north american focused we have uh, quite a big business around the world including places like australia india china south america we have a long history in south america but we've really sort of pushed up our aum down there in the last little while um, and europe and the uk um, so we're now essentially uh, in all the places globally we want to be we have offices in all of those locations um, and we really have put leadership from Brookfield to run businesses within those geographic areas. And then the second way we've really diversified over that time is to uh, is sector wise. Um, so now there isn't really a sector that we don't touch. We do everything from office, industrial, retail, multifamily, the four major food groups around the world, um, to uh, we are one of the largest student housing owners and developers in Europe. Uh, we are one of the larger self-storage companies in, uh, in the U.S. Um, we're doing some uh, service department businesses in the U.K. We do manufactured housing in the U.S., 
Um, so we do have quite a diverse range um, from, as it relates to both uh, globally, geographically, and sector-wise. And over the years um, where we started, we had this tremendous skill set on the office side, both operating and developing. Over the years, we now have uh, created this skill set in many other sectors as well, and in many cases have permanent operating teams on retail and multifamily and industrial um, that we continue to leverage as we do new new deals or new opportunities globally. So how do you manage to keep all that? You know, I, I imagine, you know, the, the, the image of the, the circus performer with the spinning plates uh, and all of the food groups, as, as you said, across the world, and you've got all these plates that are spinning around. I mean, there's got to be a tremendous challenge to keep all those plates spinning uh, in perfect equilibrium and, and with tremendous momentum. How, do, how does Brookfield do it? Well, one of the things I just briefly mentioned, I was describing that is we, we put leadership around the world that has the autonomy and the responsibility and the accountability to make decisions within their region with obviously there are approval uh, processes and the like and investment committees and, and everyone makes sure we're communicating. Um, but in order to be nimble in order to put capital out in the time frames that we need to that sometimes required for deals it's really two things one making sure people are um, you know have the accountability and the responsibility to take those decisions and to making sure that we communicate Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not just formally communicate, not just with the investment committee, et cetera, but that, you know, I, I know being here in Canada, I'm constantly picking up the phone, whether it be to ask our, you know, U.S. hotel folks for advice on something we're underwriting here as it relates to hotel operations, whether it's calling our guys in Europe to get their latest experience on student mm-hmm. housing because we're looking at something like that here. It's this constant informal communication around those folks that are tasked with running those regions. Right. So it's the local the local experience, the local knowledge that you lean on to obviously execute on all those projects. Yeah, you have to. You, you can't be too centralized. Otherwise, to your point, it becomes very difficult to actually get things done out in the regions. Okay. Well, ser- obviously, Brookfield has a significant size and scale to enable you to take on all of those uh, incredibly large and diversified projects around the world. But what I'm, I'm curious about is, is whether there's anything about being um, a Toronto-based company or having a Toronto business mentality, or if, if there is something unique to Toronto in, in our business approach, that gives you a competitive edge in shaping your company's success abroad. Yeah, I, I would say definitely there is. And, and Brookfield historically was a Canadian, a Toronto-based company. Um, and, and if you go back, I think what was successful in that, and it started with the office business, as we built a skill set and opportunity and what was a pretty demanding office environment in Toronto back in the 90s when we were really building that business. It was a very challenging place to do business. We built a skill set that I think was probably second to none. We then exported that to various places, uh, first the U.S. and then more recently to a lot of the global um, cities that we operate in. And we still, to this date, have um, sort of what I'll call Canadian advisors that fly to all those places and help the teams there get set up, put best practices in place, 
um, if they have issues, helping them get around those issues. So our history as a Canadian company and operating in that environment uh, back in the 90s when the real estate uh, so it's just were it's very that tough. past experience that you have. Absolutely. Is there anything about being a, uh, having again getting to the back that question about Toronto acumen business acumen? Um, does that set us apart from other? So I, other? I will say what does set us apart, and and I'll <laughs> try to be as politically correct as I can here, is, is globally when we operate um, and and we are a Canadian company. We sometimes get a different reaction um, than if you are from other parts of the world. We tend to get a more open reaction to Canadians, Torontonians. Right. So it's like wearing the flag the on, your, uh, yes, on your it's backpack. Like, yes, okay. it's like traveling and wearing the, the Canadian flag. So, so I will say that. Um, you know, specific to Toronto, I think more recently, yes, because Toronto... Um, I'll say post-financial crisis, but really in the last five years has hit the global stage in a way that it really never has before. I, gr- I grew up in this city, and, and I recall as I was growing up, we sort of always had this, oh, wow, I wish we were a global city mm-hmm. mentality. And now we're here. And it kind of snuck up on us, I think, a bit. I think we're still not entirely used to it, but I can tell you from talking to people around the globe that we, we are on that stage right now. Mm-hmm. And I think as that has happened, more people are asking about the city um, because we do have a lot, and, and to some degree this applies to Vancouver as well, the two cities where you have a tremendous amount of immigration coming from other places in the globe, and, and with that a tremendous amount of um, corporate relocation or corporate expansion. Um, we're seeing more and more convention activity. We own a hotel, the Sheraton Hotel here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I can tell you it's one of the best investments we've ever made because of the visitation to Toronto and what has picked up uh, over the last couple of years here. So, yeah, I, I would say more recently there is a lot of attention on it. And I think having ULI here in spring is partially a result of that, but yeah. also gives an opportunity for that message. As and well. that's the theme of the upcoming spring meeting right. is about Toronto's uh, emergence as a global city right. and, and that sort of uh, sets the tone for the theme of this this whole series of interviews um, so we're taking uh, we're doing this interview here at, in Brookfield Place in Toronto um, built in the early 90s it's one of the defining skyscrapers of our city and for those who haven't been here if you're um, listening to this podcast and you're not from Toronto uh, this uh, development also includes the award-winning Alan Lambert Galleria. It's a phenomenal space, and it actually has a direct connection to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, but let's—I I, want to talk a little bit about some of your projects abroad. Um, any ones that come to mind? I was looking on your website, and um, a couple that um, uh, struck my interest was uh, Pier Seventy, a waterfront development in San Francisco. And I understand it is to be the largest mass timber office building in North America as part of a 28-acre development. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project? Sure. And just before I do that, I'd say one of the things uh, you asked sort of about how we've evolved. I'd say one of the other places we've evolved related to your question is um, we have really embraced over the last few years the concept of placemaking. 
Um, so I would say historically, we have always been very good at efficiently developing, building office buildings that work very well for the tenants that occupy them. That has evolved over time into a more uh, fully embracing development of the community around it, um, of other uses within the development, whether it be residential, hotel, retail. Um, and, and I think you see that in a lot of our more recent developments as they go up. It's a place where you can go to do many different things as opposed to just showing up at 8.30 in the morning to go to your office, mm -hmm. um, being in a nice office building, and then leaving to go home. Um, they're a little more encompassing of sort of 24, 18-hour lifestyles, whatever sure. you want to call it. Um, Pier 70 is uh, a development in San Francisco. Um, it's sort of in partnership with the with the city of San Francisco. It's about 28 acres in total. Uh, you referenced the timber building. There is a timber building that is going to be part of that development. Um, and if nothing has changed, I do think it is the largest timber building um, that is going to be built in North America right now. Um, I think it's just over 300, 375,000 square feet, uh, six-story building. Um, but that entire development also has uh, about 1.75 million square feet of office space, um, about 2,000 multifamily units. There's a very large portion of multifamily units that are going to be affordable. There's a nine-acre park in that. There's 300,000 square feet of not just retail space, but public event space mm -hmm. as well, um, as well as the fact that this is uh, heavily connected to all of the San Francisco Bay Area transit networks. So it is much more of a, the more simple term is just a mixed-use development, but there is a placemaking aspect to this to make it a place where you don't just go to work or live. Mm -hmm. You go to do activities, to attend events, uh, to sit in the park and just enjoy yourself. Um, so was that a project that um, was brought to Brookfield's attention for investment opportunity, or was that something that you initiated? Uh, and is it that pl is it, it's that placemaking aspect that, yeah. um, that drew you to this particular project? So this development uh, was, was actually part of a, I'll call it a corporate purchase that we made. We bought Forest City properties, uh, actually REIT in the U.S., um, it must be 12 months ago now, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, within that company, and one of the reasons we found that company so attractive was that it had both... Um, an incredibly high quality portfolio of office, residential, uh, life science type buildings. But it also had this great pipeline of development, including Pier 70. There's also Stapleton in Colorado, which is the old airport that is getting redeveloped over 20 years. Um, and a number of other large scale developments, the yards in Washington, D.C., which is, I think, about 40 acres, mm. office, hotel, residential, um, right on the river with a, with a riverfront retail entertainment aspect to it um, by the ballpark. Pier 70 came as part of that acquisition. Um, and was part of what made Forest City attractive to us. So is there any other uh, project outside of Canada that you want to shed light on for the purposes yeah, of this podcast? Yeah, and I think this is not too far from us, but I, I think I would point to it only because it, it highlights a lot of the things um, that we think differentiate us from a development perspective, and that's the, our Manhattan West development in New York. It's about 7 million or so square feet. Again, it's mixed use in nature. Um, with multifamily, with retail, with three office buildings, with a hotel, and with a large park outdoor area. Um, and, and one of the aspects of this that made it 
one very difficult but also really rewarding is that a good chunk of that development is built over top of railroad uh, rail lands. So this is part of the Hudson Yards development. Zone. This is adjacent to adjacent, adjacent to, to the Hudson Yards okay. development. Yeah, they're our, they're our neighbor. They're your neighbor. Okay, yes, that's right. So it's interesting because I had a, a recent interview with Michael Turner, the president of of Oxford, and they talk. He talked a lot about the Hudson Yards project. Rail, uh, rail deck and in the, I guess, the mid part of Manhattan. Um, so this project is right next to it. Is next door to it, yeah. And same idea. Same idea, similar idea. And and so I, I think I look at that and I think about a few things that, that a lot of our developments highlight. One is they tend to be transformational. To do developments of that size, both Hudson Yards and Manhattan West, have really changed the entire side of Midtown there by Penn Station. Um, what it was five, ten years ago is nothing like what it is now in terms of people living there, working there um, with the retail and the connection out to the water now. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is is urban redevelopment is fast becoming most of our development pipeline. There's no green fields. Um, and so the complexity of these developments building over tracks um, we actually have a few things we're looking at and, and we're building a building in Sydney called Wynyard that's also over a train station. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's a skill set that is definitely learned in a specific expertise as opposed to putting up a building on an empty site. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and then the last thing I would say is not only are we putting up new buildings, we're doing an awful lot... It, call it placemaking as well, but renovations, major renovations and changes to existing office buildings or other type of buildings and, and urban centers to really bring them into the current placemaking. And so there was a building here, uh, by four Manhattan, five Manhattan West, that was a little stubby building that was all concrete that we actually uh, spent a significant amount of time and effort reskinning the entire building. And now it's these massive floor plates that are hugely attractive to um, a lot of tech tenants or, or tenants that like large open floor plans with very high ceilings. It's almost uh, like industrial space converted to mm -hmm. office. Um, we, we did something not similar, but a similar sort of reinvention to Brookfield Place in Battery Park City in New York. Uh, where we um, spent, again, a, a quite a bit of time thinking through and executing a complete redevelopment of our ground and second floor space, um, the retail environment, and that stretches out to the outdoors on the water of the Hudson River there. Um, and, and it became a place where the community in Battery Park could really also go and spend time on the weekends. Mm. Um, I, I remember when I first started and I would go down there um, you know, if you were there on a Friday or on a, on a Saturday, if you happened to stay over the weekend, there was no one in our office building. It was, it was really just for working. It was nine to five. If you go now, there's strollers and people, mm -hmm. uh, the restaurants that we put in are doing a great business. If it's, if it's summertime, there's crowds out and we hold, uh, events, uh, on the outdoor space adjacent to the water. We put a, a skating rink in the winter out there. We do a tennis tournament during the, during the U S open, uh, which is just in New York and flushing there. Um, and so this sort of placemaking idea, this reinvention, this, again, some people call them 24 hour cities or 18 hour cities, but this is a big part of what we're doing as, as urbanization renewal. That's uh, fantastic. I mean, place. as an urban planner, it's really great to hear that there is a little bit more of a, 
a mix of uses, the placemaking, these are all terms that I think really get planners excited. You mentioned Battery Park and you mentioned Canary Wharf earlier in a podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say that it's almost as if you're following on the coattails of um, another uh, real estate giant that um, was a giant in, in Canada and around the world, and that's Olympia, New York. Olympia, New York, that um, helped create Battery Park in Manhattan. Um, they were behind first Canadian place here in Toronto, which is still, I think, the tallest office tower. It is, yes. And they were the, uh, the visionary behind Canary Wharf. Unfortunately, the timing, you mentioned timing, the timing for them did not work out That's and right. that probably led to the downfall. Um, you know, they, they came up with the idea and when they finally um, implemented it, it was during the, the recession of the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but, it, you know, you really are seemingly following in some ways in the, the coattails of, of the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the assets are the same assets, and that, that's definitely true. And they, they really were, they were sort of visionary in their thinking at that time. I, I think what sort of what happened and, and the fact that we own those assets, what it does point to is, and we're very conscious of this, as these developments get bigger in size and longer in time frames, you do have to make sure your capital profile, your capital stack, the way you're phasing them, that everything is actually structured right to get through a 10, 15, 20 year build out on some of the bigger things people are doing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of capital. Like sure. you, you have to be well capitalized like a Brookfield or a few other players globally um, to really make sure you can see these things through. Well, let's focus then on your activity here at home. I, my first question is, um, how has that international experience shaped the way you approach projects close to home? Yeah, so I would say tremendously. And, and it's funny because I would say historically, we took our office expertise that sort of grew in Canada and exported that to a lot of places. Um, now what we're doing is taking some of the expertise we have in other sectors and as we try and grow our business here in Canada, we're going to be heavily leveraging that experience. Um, and the one place that we're spending quite a bit of time on, and you mentioned our development uh, at the GO train station in Burlington, is multifamily, is rental apartments. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of expertise south of the border in that sector. And for reasons relating to regulatory policy, et cetera, there hasn't really been a lot of multifamily development up until the last really 24 months um, in Canada and any of the cities. Um, And historically, landlords really haven't had a lot of competition as we've always been very well leased, mostly because of lack of product. And so what you see south of the border is a little more innovation, uh, a little more uh, customer service focused, offering something different to tenants because you are competing with the guy down the street or the new build down the street constantly. Um, And so some of that aspect of it, as well as just the fact that there's not a lot of multifamily development expertise in Canada, there is condominium, a lot of condominium development expertise in Canada, probably more so than in many other places in the world. Uh, But multifamily is a little bit different for a few reasons. One, operationally, you build it, you own it, you're running it, you're not gone in a few years. Um, And then the second thing is like you have tenants and amenities that you have to think about in these buildings on an ongoing basis um, and how you service packages to these tenants, how you deal with their requests in this new digital age, what what type of um, 
digital apps you use to do that. Uh, we've started to make investments in the U.S. Um, in prop tech companies um, as one way, again, the benefit of scale um, is that you can make these investments and run sort of these beta projects because you have such a large portfolio. If it, if it doesn't work, it's, you know, it's not moving the needle on anything. And so we have the ability to try these things. And now we have the ability to bring them here as we find, uh, you know, if we see success with certain things in the U.S. that we think might operate well up here. Um, that's the most obvious one in multifamily. But I would say that's the case in a lot of sectors and industrial. Um, there's just a lot of innovation because of the way the markets have worked historically in the U.S. with more new supply. You know, when the new supply spigot gets turned on in U.S. cities, it goes, right? And the, as a result, the competition for tenants and the competition for, for making sure your cost structures are, are as low as possible on development is just a little bit different than in Canada. So you always have to make sure your, your pencils are as sharp as possible. Uh, you, you always do. And again, Canada is just, I mean, really, it's, I think it's fabulous in the last three, four years. Um, like, I think we're really getting up that curve very quickly. Um, especially on the office side uh, of the development market in Canada. I think we have a lot of global players based in Canada, some specifically based in Toronto, probably at a higher concentration than a lot of other cities, to be <laughs> frank, to have Oxford, Brookfield, Cadillac all sitting in Toronto, um, I think is, is tremendous for this market. So our office buildings are incredible in mm -hmm. this city. Um, and we're hoping to bring some of that to some of the other sectors as well. So we mentioned the Burlington Go Lands, um, Go Rail Lands. So that, I guess, in essence, is a transit-oriented development yes, project. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and that there's a lot of buzz around transit-oriented development. Uh, certainly where I work at Infrastructure Ontario in, in conjunction with Metrolinx is really trying to uh, leverage opportunities for TOD. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit more about why Brookfield um, took on that challenge to invest in a, in a TOD opportunity? Sure, yeah. So uh, being originally based in Toronto and based in Canada, uh, we do have a familiarity with the markets, and we've seen what's happened over the last five years as it relates to, I'll just call it everything housing-related. Um, and I, I think there's a realization, and this is not you know, rocket science that only we know, that in places like Toronto and Vancouver, uh, we are land constrained, right? We have the green belt that goes around the city of Toronto that creates a finite supply of land within that green belt um, to deal with uh, our, and I'll call them housing issues at this point, and that we don't have, um, you know, enough enough housing at this stage or the affordability of housing at this stage for the amount of growth we're seeing in this uh, city. Vancouver is very similar, very land constrained. Um, and so vertical going up and as well as being able to move people around the city are the two solutions that are going to make sense to see continued growth and economic prosperity in these cities. Um, so for us, unless you're right in the core of the city, um, transit is almost a must-have unless there's some other feature or aspect to it um, because the reality is um, as time goes on and people still work in the city but now they live in Burlington or Mississauga driving is going to become more and more difficult time-consuming frustrating um, you layer all that on top of the fact that you know Millennials as the starting generation but I'm sure with future generations 
um, just given the amount of disruption in the sector, whether it's car sharing or the Ubers of the world or some other thing that someone has is going to come up with in two years, um, you know, individually owning your own car and driving is going to become less. Mm-hmm. Whether it goes to zero, I don't know. Whether it goes to fifty percent, but it's definitely less. Mm-hmm. I think if you asked your, you know, some of the condo developers who are sort of putting projects up all around the city. Um, there is a move to reduce the amount of parking you have to build because it's not getting used as much. So what are you finding is the greatest challenge to um, to realizing this, this TOD development? Or, although you are in the early stages, I presume. Um, we are, yeah. I, I think the, the biggest challenge, and, and everyone is making progress on this, it's just taking time, is that with TOD outside of the core... The community, the politicians, people have to get comfortable with density in certain places. And I think that's just a reality of the success, quite frankly, that Toronto and Vancouver is seeing. And I think we're getting there. Like, I I think in places like Burlington and Mississauga, like it is happening, it's occurring. Um, And I think rightfully so, it's being focused around transit. You don't need to put up 50 story buildings sort of randomly in some of these places. It needs to be oriented and put in a place where those people can get to a GO train or an LRT in Mississauga's case. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But I think there is still this ongoing work about what the appropriate built form Mm -hmm. and density is when you're talking about TOD. Again, outside of the core, I think in the core you get to certain densities and everyone kind of agrees it's downtown Toronto. It should be a tall building. So you have to have the patience um, and the stamina for dealing with uh, a community that's not necessarily used to that uh, dense, intensified development. um. Yeah, I'd I'd say it's an education. Um, It's certainly not, and again, our experience is that people aren't opposed to it. it has to be in the right spot and oriented in the right way. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, density, uh, I do want to ask about a office project that's going up right around the corner from here, the Bay Adelaide Tower. And I do want to link it with um, the Deep Lake Cooling Project, right. uh, yes. which is uh, run by N-Wave, which is a Brookfield-owned uh, company. Um, maybe you want to talk just a little bit about the deep lake cooling, which to me it seems like a very successful venture from way back in the early 2000s, um, and essentially it's district energy. Maybe you can talk a little bit about yeah, the tower right. and N-Wave. So, so N-Wave is owned within within our infrastructure group here at Brookfield. Um, you know, the, the intricacies in the, in the ins and outs, I'll, I'll leave to those guys. But what I would say is... Um, the the deep lake water cooling and and also the heating and steam generation they're doing in the city, um, I, I would say as a real estate guy, we largely look to this as oh it's cost efficient it's cheaper. I think that has really been kicked up a, a ton in the last couple of years as sustainability and climate change uh, has become a much much bigger issue and a much. Uh, from a from a perspective of investors or tenants sort of checking boxes on buildings and space or things they want to invest in, that is almost top of the list now. Mm. I mean, you have return <laughs> and the, or you have functionality of right. space and then you have sustainability. Good. Um, and so that is a huge factor. Our Bay Adelaide uh, Center development, which is three towers, two are already up. 
Um, the third is going up now. Um, I think we're just a little bit above grade. Um, it's about a three, three and change uh, million square foot complex. The last tower going up is just over 800,000 square feet. We hooked the, those three uh, towers all up to the N-Wave system. Mm-hmm. And I think from our perspective, um, you know, we did get sort of lead certified on those buildings. Um, and, and obviously, wherever we can reduce operating expenses is, is a benefit to us. But is, it is quickly becoming something that um, in, the, in the new tower, from a leasing perspective, you know, you can check the sustainability box and it, and it really matters. It really makes a difference now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tower that's going up, uh, while we can in the future if we, if we need to, we don't have a traditional chiller and chilling plant because we're hooked up to that system. And so the savings is tremendous, both from a cost perspective as well as a uh, uh, energy operating efficiency sustainability perspective well i'm not going to ask you to answer any technical questions about (laughs) how it operates and i would encourage our listeners to maybe look it up on your own but it is an amazing piece of infrastructure um that's uh as you said helping with the sustainability uh and energy efficiency of a lot of the buildings downtown so i just want to wrap things up um We've talked a lot about Brookfield, where you've been, how you've evolved, all the different projects that you've taken on. What, how is Brookfield being positioned for the future, and, and what does your sphere look like in, in years to come? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of our, our growth trajectory, we, we'll, we still see sort of quite a bit of runway from, from I'll call it from a, a bigger perspective of Brookfield, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit about Canadian real estate. Um, I, I think I mentioned before the low interest rate environment doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. And so the type of uh, assets that we invest in, really any real assets, whether it's real estate or infrastructure, power plants, uh, whatever the case may be, I think are going to continue to attract capital. Um, I'd say the other thing is a lot of those assets are large in nature, both from a uh, capital investment perspective and a scale perspective. And I, I think for an investor like Brookfield, that works to our advantage, uh, given our size and our ability to deal with those things on a, on a larger scale. Uh, as it relates to Canada and real estate, which is what I do sort of every day, I, I think we're on a growth path for Canada. I think we love the environment uh, in the cities in Canada today. We love the growth prospects. Uh, We love where Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, where those cities sit in a more global perspective or North American perspective. Um, And so we're actively looking um, really across every sector. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we have different capital pools that have different return thresholds and different objectives, but there isn't really an investment that we don't have a, a bucket for. Um, and in Canada, where we've been largely an office company, I think doing our development deal in Burlington uh, two-ish years ago, we bought the Sheraton Hotel. I think those kind of investments, you're going to see more of those. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time on the multifamily sector. Uh, we love hotels. We don't have a lot of them in Canada, and so sometimes you have to wait a little while to sort of wait for those opportunities. Uh, we're always looking in the office sector. Again, in these markets, the office sector is just so incredibly strong right now. Um, and again, we have limited supply and a tr- tremendous amount of jobs uh, coming to this country. I, I think in the last mm-hmm. week, if you look at Vancouver as an example, maybe a week and a half or two weeks, you had Shopify announce 1,000 jobs in Vancouver. You had Google announce Toronto and Montreal 
in Waterloo region, 5,000 jobs. Like it just seems over and over again, these companies are looking to Canada for various reasons, uh, quality of the labor pool, education, you know, cost efficiencies versus south of the border. Um, And again, we don't really see an end to that either. Well, you sound like you're you're very busy looking across the country in different asset classes. Um, It's amazing. How big is your office? How big is your team, I should ask? So from an asset management perspective, we're, we're relatively lean. Um, if you just look at the, the folks that are running around every day trying to find deals, we're seven or eight people. Okay. Um, now, we have a lot of people that sort of behind the scenes that, that aren't out there hunting deals, but that keep the machine running, right. so to speak. Right. There's another you know, 40 or so people okay. here. Uh, we have a lot of people in our New York office as well that help keep the you know, the, the machine and the engine running so that we can go out and find deals. Um, but really where we have the substantial amount of our people are in our operating companies. So we do have our office company here that has another, you know, 200 or so people that, that actually every day run, operate, execute, build our office buildings. Exciting times for you guys. It is very much. Um, exciting. I think exciting for Canada. I was going to yeah. say exciting for Canada, exciting for Toronto. Uh, I, too, am uh, born and raised in this city, and I would agree that uh, there really is a, um, uh, a swing in our step, a swagger, whatever you want to call it, but um, you can feel it. Yes. And, um, and uh, the fact that Brookfield is now taking advantage or seeing the opportunities, I should say, uh, here back home with uh, uh, way more interesting type projects is yeah. exciting. So. With that, uh, I really, really appreciate your time uh, to talk with me today, and um, maybe we'll reconnect again at the ULI Spring Meeting. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, thank you.